Welcome to Leadership, The Journey with No Summit, with best-selling author and retired U.S. Army Major General, Robert W. Mixon, Jr. Best known for his ability to inspire audiences, motivate teams, build leaders, and create cultures of excellence, Robert shares effective values-based leadership strategies and tools your team can put into practice immediately that will fuel your company's lasting success. Now, here is your host, Robert Mixon. So welcome, everybody, to the uh, Level 5 Associates Journey with No Summit podcast program. And today in our 12th uh, episode of the series, we're privileged to have uh, Major General Retired Craig Weldon uh, as uh, our guest uh, leader. And uh, Craig and I have known each other off and on for many years, probably more than we should admit. But uh, we had opportunity to be soldiers at a number of different levels uh, through our careers in, in the armor and cavalry in units. Craig also spent, I believe, nine years as a senior executive service member, which is a general officer equivalent, uh, working primarily for the United States Marine Corps, I think, at that point in time, Craig, after your retirement from active duty. And uh, he's written an outstanding book here called Leadership, The Art of Inspiring People to Be Their Best. And uh, Craig, I've certainly enjoyed it. And thanks for being part of our program today as we talk about your work, your journey. And uh, I'll ask you a few questions about one of the principles that I uh, believe in, I think we both do, and doing the right thing when no one's looking. Sure. So, Craig, good to have you. Thanks for the invite, Robert. The first chapter of your book on leadership, <laughs> the art of inspiring people to be their best, is entitled Character, Leadership's Basic Building Block. Could you tell us why uh, you think that's so important? Yeah, so let me back up a little bit and tell you how the book came to be about Two and a half years ago or so, I was the executive director for Marine Corps Forces Pacific in Hawaii, and I thought I was going to do that for a few more years and then kind of retire into the sunset of the Pacific. And my wife said she wanted to move back to the mainland because we were too far from family. So that changed my career path uh, pretty dramatically. Um, I told the Marine Corps that I wanted to retire in about a year, and then somebody asked me, well, what are you going to do next? And I said, I want to get back what I've learned over four or five decades to the next generation um, so they can benefit from that. That's the legacy that I'd like to leave. And they said, well, you need a book. And I said, are you kidding me? A book? I can't write a book. I'd never you know, even thought about writing a book. I'd written a few articles in my life and I thought I was a pretty decent writer, but a book sounded awfully intimidating, particularly for a fellow that's in his mid sixties. To, to make a long story short, I wrote a book. I wrote a manuscript in the fall of 2018, then, then I didn't know what to do with it. So I reached out, found an editor slash publisher. I said, can you help me get this across the finish line? He said, sure. I said, the first thing I need from you is to kind of tell me what you think. So he read through it and he called me back and he said, nobody's gonna read this book. <laughs> and I said, are you kidding me? What, what's wrong? What's wrong with it? He said, it's a memoir. It's a story of your life. You are not Michelle Obama or Amoroso. You're not famous or infamous. And quite frankly, you need to be a personality or a celebrity that people know uh, to write a memoir and, and, and sell it. I said, well, I didn't intend to write a memoir. I intended to write a leadership book. What do you suggest? He said, you've got all kinds of wonderful stories in here and you've got lessons that are buried in those stories. Find them, pull them out, make them chapter titles and then fold the stories up underneath. 
So I kind of figuratively took a yellow highlighter, went through the manuscript, found those nuggets, those leadership and life lesson nuggets, uh, picked certain ones to be chapter titles, folded my stories underneath, gave it back to him. He says, now we got something. Uh, so that's how this thing evolved. And he then asked me, what's the most important component uh, for an effective and great leader? And I had, I said, having strong character. And he said, well, that should be chapter one in your book. And I said, okay. So that's the reason chapter one is about character. And, I, and when I try to define character, uh, it's really an umbrella term that includes so many characteristics like ambition and perseverance and self-awareness, empathy, humility, honesty, trust, integrity, charisma, uh, and, but always subordinating your personal interests uh, sometimes uh, for the organization, um, for the interest of, of, of the organization. And there's also a component of resilience, which is what some people characterize as grit. And I talk about that in my book. I dedicated my book to my dad who uh, really taught me about character and also taught me about grit as I watched him uh, through his career. So character is the first chapter in my book because I think it's the most important trait for an effective leader. It's a foundation for all effective leaders. And without it, I think a leader uh, stands a great risk of failure, um, particularly when the pressures start mounting. Okay. Well, thanks, Craig. That's insightful. Uh, I, I certainly agree with you that you know, character is sort of the foundation stone on which which leadership is based, and I can see why you why you went to chapter one in that direction. Uh, I'd like to ask also, while we're on this topic here, you know, in terms of character, what's the best example? Who's the best example you've seen a leader doing the right thing, uh, whether or not anybody was looking? Yeah, well, I've seen that a number of times, as as I know you have. Uh, and uh, let me tell another story if I can. Uh, I have a chapter in my book where I talk about mentorship and I talk about, uh, about four different kinds. One of them, uh, which is the one that I ascribe to mostly is what I call virtual mentorship. So imagine for a moment that you're walking down a path and the path represents your journey in life. It can be your professional life or your personal life. And along the path, you see rocks. And each of those rocks represent an experience or a person that you come across in that journey. What I tell people is pick up those rocks that uh, you're particularly impressed with and put them in your backpack and carry them with you so that you can repeat those uh, as you become more senior. But also pick up the rocks of the ones that are not uh, very endearing, uh, the things you wanna make sure you never do and put those in, the rock, in your rucksack as well to remind you of the, uh, of the things not to do. I'm reminded, and I think you remember this, uh, the NCO, the non-commissioned officer, the sergeants, uh, which are really the backbone of the army, uh, had a, I think it was an informal uh, motto at one time, uh, never walk by a deficiency. And, you know, I think if you embody that kind of principle that uh, even when nobody's watching, you're doing the right thing. When you see something that's wrong, you stop and you do what you can to fix it. Uh, and so I've probably got, I don't know, hundreds, as, as you have, of examples of non-commissioned officers, officers, civilians, and even young enlisted guys who are just in, who did the right thing at the right time, even when somebody wasn't watching. Well, that's true. I mean, there, there are dozens of examples. It's kind of hard to pick out 
one that stands out about above others. But I think it's nice to have those rocks in your rucksack in terms of you were talking about, you know, where you've seen examples of people doing right, of standing up for what's right. So let me give an example of an institutional uh, example. Uh, you and I both grew up in the 70s, 80s, 90s uh, of the Army, and we saw the evolution from the post-Vietnam era of the 70s, uh, which was a difficult time. That entire decade was a difficult time into the 80s where it started to get better. And we instituted some things uh, when we got into the 1980s, uh, which really changed the Army, I think. We had going into the 80s and the late 70s, what I remember uh, what people commonly referred to as zero defects army. And which means if you mistake, you're, make a mistake, you're gone, uh, essentially. And so what that did was it got everybody's pucker factor to a point where they were reluctant to take any risks. That started to change in the 80s and we started to evolve. We started to power down authority, allow people to make mistakes. And we introduced a concept uh, which is very, very common now, broadly known throughout all the military, used in the corporate world called the after action review. And the after action review was an opportunity to reflect back on whatever it was you just did, whether it was an operation or a training exercise and say, this is what we did right. This is what we did wrong. This is how we can make it better the next time we do it. Let's move forward. And I'm oversimplifying it, but you know, you get the idea. And what was poignant about that, that I recall, is they encourage the leader of the organization to be the very first person to stand up and say, let me tell you what I did wrong. And what that did is it freed up everybody else in the organization to feel like they could step forward and admit of things that they didn't do right, even when nobody was watching. I think that leads in well to the next question I had in mind here, Craig, about you know, the last chapter of your book, where you talk about you're entitled the buck stops where, and you cite President uh, Harry Truman, the buck stops here, quote, at the front of it. Isn't that also part of the framework that you're talking about here in terms of doing right and being accountable? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Taking uh, responsibility uh, when, when, when it's appropriate. Uh, you know, what prompted that chapter in my book, I think, was an experience I had in 2018. I was in Hawaii. I was, a, I was the executive director of Marine Corps Forces Pacific. And I was attending an official event um, on a Friday afternoon at the governor's mansion um, representing the Marine Corps. And at the table across from me was sitting the director of the state civil defense. And he was a friend of mine. He was a retired National Guard major general. His name was Vern Miyagi. And I remember when I arrived at the table and I saw Vern sitting on the other, of, uh, other side of the table, I leaned over and I said, hey, Vern, I just want you to know how well I sleep at night, knowing that you are protecting us all the time. And he got a kick out of that and he laughed and I laughed and then we went on our business. Now that was a, about one o'clock in the afternoon on a Friday. The very next morning, the very next morning, I looked at my, there was an alert on my phone and there was a message uh, from State Civil Defense and I'll read it to you. It said, ballistic missile threat inbound to Hawaii, seek immediate shelter, this is not a drill. Now that made national and international news because it was a false alarm. Somebody in the state civil defense uh, watch team pushed the wrong button when they were doing a, a training event and they sent out a real alert to everybody in the state and they absolutely panicked an awful lot of people. 
Um, and it took about 45, about 40 minutes or so before uh, that got cleared up and they put out another message saying that was a false alarm and blah, 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 blah. But you can imagine in the days and weeks that followed that, everybody was saying, how in the world could that have happened? And the ramifications were pretty significant. And Vern Miyagi stood up and said, I'm the director of state civil defense. I take full responsibility and I will fall on my sword and basically turned in his, uh, his uh, resignation in that position. And Vern Miyagi is a hero in my eyes because he stepped forward and he said, the buck stops here. Well, the buck really stopped at the governor's desk, one could presume. Uh, the governor didn't take responsibility for it. In fact, he got reelected <laughs> just a few months later. But Vern Miyagi became one of my, he was a friend of mine up to that point already, but he became one of my heroes because he stepped forward and said, that's my organization, I'm responsible. And if anybody's going to point the blame, blame, blame me. Quite a story, uh, you know, of taking responsibility and doing the right thing and setting an example by doing so. Uh, it seems to be harder and harder these days to find leaders uh, like that, at least in, in, in the uh, lanes of the interstate that I've been moving in here recently. So I think the, the issue is, you know, what can we do as leaders to help build a culture that others want to belong to by doing the right thing? And I'd kind of like to know, Craig, in your view, what are the characteristics of a world-class culture? Well, uh, quite pragmatically, achieving a world-class culture is difficult to achieve. And once you do achieve it, it's also challenging to sustain because it involves the participation the contribution and the buy-in of everybody in the organization, obviously. And the bigger the organization, the more difficult it is uh, to, to, to manage. But as you know, in the military, in our experience with the Army and my, and my experience, uh, nine years of experience with the Marine Corps, it all starts out with a set of values uh, that says, this is these are the values that we hold dear in our organization. These are the character traits that we want people to adopt. These are the negotiables. These are the non-negotiables. When I wrote my philosophy of command as a battalion commander over 30 years ago, I put a section in there about non-negotiables. And non-negotiables mean if you screw up doing this, then you're not part, you don't need to be in my organization or quite frankly in the army. And violating people's trust, lying, cheating, stealing, uh, those kinds of things uh, violate the values of our institution and our organization. So, you know, establishing the tone, uh, the leader establishing the tone early on, very early on, like the first day they get there, this is the direction I wanna go. This is my philosophy of command, or this is my corporate vision for the organization. And then telling people what you value, what your values are and what your non-negotiables are, uh, gets everybody established at a certain place where you can move forward, but then maintaining that and having the discipline to respond when you see violations of that uh, is important. So uh, yeah, in a perfect world, world-class culture um, is achievable, uh, but difficult to sustain. And, and I've been in organizations where I thought we had a pretty darn good uh, culture and some that, that were crack, cracking at the seams. Mm -hmm. 
like you say, you got to nurture the culture. You can't just, you know, set it and forget it, as they used to say in one of the infomercials. Yeah. Got to nurture, right? Yeah, absolutely. In, in your in your view, your experience, you know, your journey, right? Um, who are your heroes or one or two people who stand out for you uh, as leaders who really were heroes to you? Why? One of them is on the wall right behind you, Colin Powell. Now, I never worked for him directly, and I know that you did, uh, but I he was a hero of mine all growing up through uh, the Army as I watched him uh, get up to Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and so forth. Tell you a quick story of the connection between us. I commanded the Buffalo Soldiers, the 10th Cavalry, and the 10th Cavalry uh, was famous for an all-Black regiment back in the 1800s. Uh, very, very brave, uh, nicknamed the Buffalo Soldiers by the American Indians, uh, but they have a tremendous historical significance to our Army. And uh, so I was a ver very proud to be their commander. And when the Buffalo Soldier Monument uh, was uh, uh, begun at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, which I know you've probably seen, I happened to be the commander of the 10th Cavalry. And I took all my stuff out there. I took a color guard out there, all the silver for the regiment. General Colin Powell uh, was the guest of honor for that. And so I met him there. And that's the only time I met him. But I watched him from afar, and he was always one of my heroes. Another one uh, that I think uh, I've always admired, I learned about when I got to Purdue University and I joined a fraternity. And the fraternity I joined had as a member, a generation before me, John Wooden, who was a basketball coach at UCLA for decades and won more NCAA championships than anybody else. But what John Wooden is not known for as much as his championship uh, teams is the way he pulled those teams together as a team, the way he developed and encouraged and taught character to his players. Um, so he was he 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 was a five foot ten, three time All American from Purdue University in his own right. Uh, but when he was a coach at UCLA, he turned out not only championship basketball teams, uh, but some tremendously uh, contributing valued citizens. Yeah, I, he, uh, you know, I actually quote him uh, at the beginning of my chapter one on character. He, he said, talent is God-given, be humble. Fame is man-given, be grateful. Conceit is self-given, be careful. Well, well stated by the coach. You know, he's, uh, he's described as a level five leader. And I think General Powell was too. And, you know, in John C. Maxwell's book, on level five leadership, Coach Wooten is the, the subject of the last chapter yeah. where he talks about an example of a level five leader who was represented by two things that stick with me, two qualities. One is personhood and the other is respect. And I think those two qualities give you the ability and the courage to do the right thing. Yeah. I, you know, I'd like to get your advice, Craig, on you know, what advice would you give aspiring leaders on how to learn to develop the habit of doing the right thing? in the midst of all the threats that are out there. Well, having a strong foundation in characters is a good start, I think. And again, that's the reason it's chapter one in my book. When I got done writing that chapter, I thought, have I given this topic uh, sufficient uh, focus? And uh, I didn't want to write a book exclusively about character, 
but I wanted to make sure that the reader had opportunities to dive deeper into that topic if they wanted to. So I looked around for a couple of books I thought that were worth uh, pursuing, and I recommended those uh, in, my, in my book at the end of the chapter. I've got them right here. Uh, this is one of them, uh, Building Your Leadership Legacy. It's all about character, Robert C. Carroll. He's a retired Army colonel, used to run the leadership department at West Point. You may know him. Um, and the other one, which was just published this past year, is The Character Edge, Leading and Winning with Integrity by General Bob Castlin and Dr. Michael Matthews. Bob Castlin used to be the superintendent at West Point, now is the president just up the road from me of the University of South Carolina. And both of those books take a pretty good crack at what it takes to have strong character, which again, I think is the foundation of all good uh, leaders. Um, I think next I would, I would tell people to focus on uh, their relationship and their, on trust. Trust is the second chapter in my book. If you don't have, I used to tell people when I came into a new, new organization and they kind of looked at me wide, wide, eyes wide open. I said, you know, I trust all of you until you demonstrate that you are not worthy of that trust. And that put what I think was kind of a healthy pressure on them to not violate the trust. Um, most of the organizations I joined, I thought that's a pretty good roll of the dice uh, because I think the institutionally the United States Army uh, had people uh, in it that were value-based, strong character, and, and you could assume a certain level of trust. Uh, but I think um, Booker T. Washington once said, uh, you know, the way you can determine whether or not you can trust somebody is to trust them. And uh, I think there's, I, I think I may have the right uh, notation there, but, but, it, but I think there's a lot of value in that. Okay, thanks, Craig. That's really good. Uh, I think very useful for our audience too, of leaders and aspiring leaders. Uh, I guess lastly, I'd like to ask for your thoughts on, you know, what's a big idea? That if, you had, if you had a big idea to leave with our audience of, of leaders, aspiring leaders, what would that be for their journey? Yeah, the big idea, I think, um, I'm not sure if I'm going to answer this the way you hope, um, but what I have seen over time in the evolution of leaders from young leaders to very senior leaders is that some of them start to crack when they become more senior because they kind of forget those basic foundational elements of character, of integrity, of values, of remembering their roots. Where did they come from? Uh, that they were there at some time. They start treating subordinates differently than they would have liked to have been treated when they were subordinate. There's a there's a certain leader who maintains the same values, never forgets where he or she came from, and then there are those who don't. Uh, there's a interesting story. Uh, I have a chapter in my book called Memento Mori, and in Latin that means remember you are mortal. So if you imagine for a moment the Roman general coming into Rome after a huge victory on the battlefield, and he's being feted by all the Romans. They're on either side of the road. He's in his chariot going through and they're dropping confetti and throwing gold coins at him and all that sort of thing. And standing behind him on the chariot is his slave. And one of the tasks his slave has is to lean forward, whisper into his general's ear, memento mori, which means remember you are mortal. Tomorrow you could fall. 
And we have seen too many examples, and I'm ashamed to say in the military of senior leaders who have fallen uh, because they had a character flaw. And they, they either, um, that, that shows either when they're under great pressure or when they become senior and they forget the roots, they forget, forget the basics, and there's a certain amount of arrogance. Some, a technique I learned from a fellow you, you probably know, Monty Meggs, um, mm -hmm. who retired for your listeners as a four-star general. And uh, I was his, I worked for him three times. I was his cavalry squadron S3. I was his base commander as a colonel. Then I was his chief of staff when he was a division commander. And when he was a division commander as a two-star, uh, he did this regularly. He would pull his immediate staff in and he would say to, and I'm talking about the people who were closest to him every day, me, the staff, uh, secretary's general staff, his driver, his secretary, his aide-de-camp, uh, his communications team, all those folks he would bring into a room every quarter and he would say, look, I will never cross an ethical boundary by design. Circumstances may pull me and you with me, because you're with me all the time, across that boundary line. And the more senior you become, the more temptations, the more uh, opportunities there are, are to step over that boundary. And I'm not going to do that, or I'm not going to do it consciously. And I'm charging all of you who are with me every day to keep your antenna up and let us know if you see us crossing those boundaries. And the lawyer here is going to tell you now where those boundaries are. And then the lawyer would go through his little spiel, which I know you've seen many, many times as, as I have about here are the ethical joint ethic regulation rules that you must abide by. And so everybody, including the driver and the secretary and all those people had an awareness of where the boundaries are and the general was telling them stay inside that boundary. I thought that's a pretty good tactic, uh, technique and procedure, which I think I'll put in my rucksack and carry with me if I, as I go forward. And I did, and when I became a general officer and when I became a senior executive, I did exactly the same thing. And when I was in the Marine Corps, I saw a number of three stars that I worked for do exactly the same thing. Mm -hmm. Well, that's certainly great insights, Craig. And uh, I, I want to thank you for taking the time today to come on the Journey with No Summit podcast series and talk to us about your leadership journey, your book, uh, again, on leadership, the art of inspiring people to be their best. I know it's available on Amazon, and I'm sure some people are going to Google it and, uh, and hopefully, you know, buy it and read it because I read it and I thought it was really well done and a very readable account about a practical, practical leadership tools. You know, right. I don't think we need to be terribly esoteric uh, in our lives as leaders. We just need to be authentic. Yeah. And, you know, I, th I think uh, you are indeed authentic, Greg. So thanks for taking the time to be with us today and share your thoughts. Thank you, Robert. I've enjoyed it. Okay. Wish you all in the audience well, and we'll, we'll see you and talk with you next time on the Level 5 podcast series. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to Leadership, the journey with no summit. Be sure to give our podcast a great review wherever you listen to your favorite shows.